it was tough and I had a lot of friends a lot of jazz musicians who came to New York specifically to play jazz that had to leave and that like really broke my heart like people who have gone like incredible drummers who like played in Grammy award winning bands who had to like go back and do real estate like it, it it broke my heart so I think anyone who like stuck in there I really admire that even not during a pandemic it's not a uh, it's not a particularly easy way to make a living right if not derailed it sounds like the past year and a half had had a pretty profound impact on this recording project yeah yeah for sure in so many ways I mean for one when Verve approached me to do this remix project it was before um, the pandemic was even an idea I guess maybe only Bill Gates knew about it at that time (laughs) (laughs) we're keeping that in so you know good luck with that so you know the plan was to go into the studio with my band record them doing doing these songs and then going back and chopping it up in my samplers i started a a residency it was supposed to be a four-month residency at the world-renowned new york city blue note jazz club and i think i did my second month and then two days i did my first month and then two days before my second date in march was when lockdown began and um, the label was like, hey, like, do you still want to do this? Because I know that this changes up the whole process. And one thing that I learned from a really young age is that when they ask you, can you do it? Even if you don't, you say yes and you figure it out. Take it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. And I told him, sure, I can do it. And Brian, it was a crazy experience because I had to figure out how to record this music on my home on my own at home because we couldn't go into the studio i didn't know how to use logic i didn't have any interface like i was like a garage band person at most and i had to learn the technology as i was creating these arrangements and there were a lot of moments where i just felt like giving up but um i had gotten so far that i had to push through and something luckily we it's bittersweet you know we we had to be home there weren't any other there weren't many distractions in terms of like obligations so it gave me time to commit but seeing what was going on politically socially really was a very deep um sort of undertone um as i was cooking up this project um so it was like the perfect storm um to 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 do this project specifically you know and I know you cited this before but specifically how did things like you know the protests that were really in full force uh mm-hmm. last year mm-hmm. how does that impact a project like this something that you know starts mm-hmm. off with pulling from this in a sense catalog of standards mhm mhm the thing that really was so interesting to me is that the things that Marlena Shaw, Abby Lincoln, um, I didn't do a Nina Simone on this project, but she was definitely part of the research. They all have been very verbal about the experience, their experience as black women moving around in the world, whether it's in their music or during interviews, them talking about stuff. And, you know, during the lockdown, the thing that really tore my heart apart was seeing the young children who were stuck at home in lockdown who are not able to, you know, go to school and get meals. A lot of kids, the only way they can eat was in those school lunches or children who were at home and who couldn't afford laptops. 
Um, and one of the songs on the project, Woman of the Ghetto, quite literally addresses that issue. It says, how do you raise your kids in the ghetto? Do you feed one child and starve another? Listen to me, legislator. And that's also a piece that I was like, wow, because during the protest, we were all very verbal about our displeasure with the the powers that be with Trump people, you know, everyone, all the, the politicians were we were sort of like grilling them like, what are you doing? And that song specifically was a, was pointed to the people in power. Um, so. It was it was literally a mirror of of the music that that was being sung and written in the forties, fifties, sixties. Literally, is the same climate right right now. It's it's kind of a double edged sword, right? I mean, it's kind of it's nice when you find this piece of art that speaks to the present moment, but also incredibly depressing at the same time to realize that it was recorded fifty years ago, and you know maybe you know surface level things have changed, but not really. Not really that deeply, perhaps. Yes, we still have a lot more work to be done. Addressing the symptoms, but not the underlying disease. Right, right. That is the perfect way to put it. I mean, I think that now that we have social media and we can see things happening in real time, in one way it makes it more potent, but in another way I think we've become desensitized to it. The Breonna Taylor killing was one that really hurt me because one lost life is not more valuable or less valuable than another. I want to premise with that. But George Floyd's death really took the forefront. And I feel like the Breonna Taylor situation was just kind of like, oh, that happened. That's unfortunate. And I think that I can speak on behalf of all women of color. We can say that we definitely feel unprotected, undervalued. I think we are we are so strong and resilient. We are the backbone of so many that we're the source of so much creativity. We are the backbone of so many families, infrastructures, movements that when it comes to caring for us, that's like sort of the last piece in the puzzle, you know? And this is, Brianna Tiller isn't the first woman of color that has been killed unjustly, but, you know, we were in a space where we were quiet and still that we noticed that story. There's the Sandra Bland. This is this isn't new. I felt like we need something that really sheds light on the fact that like black women need care. It's interesting. I did an interview um, for a German um, newspaper because I was performing in Germany a few weeks ago. And the lady was like, but we love black women. We love Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughn. And I was like, yeah, you love them when we're entertaining you. You love what they make. You love what they make, <laughs> you know? So it's interesting. These are topics that you, you bring, you discuss in interviews that you were you know, certainly discussing in that interview too. What role can pulling a, an older song play? I mean, is it something that you feel like can really get to the heart of uh, something that's happening contemporaneously. There's no lack of political music. There's no lack of protest music, social music. But this is uh-huh. this is something different, right? This isn't this isn't you writing a song specifically about the current moment. And there's many things. There's many pieces to that. First of all, I believe that these songs. I believe that the vocalists wove in codes in these old songs. I feel like there's some information in there that if we tap into them, they they can equip us with the tools to remedy the issues that we're dealing with, first of all. There's things that they just couldn't say at the time. 
Right. Um, you know, I just fin- got done reading um, Billie Holiday's autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, and it was so interesting reading what was going on in her life around the time where she wrote God Bless the Child, which is the opening song on the album. Um, I believe that jazz musician, jazz music, as intellectual as it can be, <clears throat> It is really for the people. It is its intention was music to liberate us, to 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 um, connect us with each other. There was a time where jazz was popular music. And I really would love to see how we can get back to that space. Um, it, it really blows my mind to think that you used to hear Ella Saravon on the radio popularly. And now it's no secret that first of all, what is pop music today? First of all, and secondly, what is, what is the type of music that we're listening to on the regular? I think that it really colors socially where we are as a people. Um, and so I believe that reworking songs that maybe your grandmother knew or your mom knew, but in a way that your cousin, your younger cousin could get into it is a way to really bridge the gap of generationally so that we can connect and really change some shit, you know? Um, you know, the, we, we all know this, what the scientists say about like when you play like classical music for a baby, how like it just shapes their brain cells and helps them become brilliant people. It's the same thing with jazz. I really mm-hmm. hope that, you know, when people listen to this project, it's sort of like the medicine with the honey. So it's like you're hearing this like old school jazz song that you can twerk to it. But you're like, wait a minute, this is this is from the 20s, the 30s. Let me hear what Dinah Washington is about. You know, I hope it becomes sort of like a gateway drug to like really getting into this, this treasure that sometimes we forget about. Conversely, there's more opportunity to do that than ever before, because mm-hmm. for better and worse, I think that as a rule, when people are listening to music because of the way it's served up through Spotify, uh, context is a little bit less important. Now that's like, it's not great from the standpoint of it's, you know, it's nice to know the history. It's nice to know like the, the events that created a particular piece of music. But the upshot of it is, is that particularly younger people, they have no allegiance to a particular style of music. You know, it's, it's just whatever comes on and whatever sounds good to them, they'll embrace. And I actually love that. I'm actually about that because I believe that good art, regardless of the genre, is a reflection of what's happening currently. And although we might want to use the terminology jazz to describe music that has improvisation and all that stuff, I really believe that it can sound and feel very differently from the stuff that Sarah and Ella and Miles Davis was doing, actually. And that's why I think it's really exciting that like this this album shows up on so many different types of playlists, not just jazz playlists, because it, it, it consists of elements that are beyond jazz but the root if you go back it goes back to that and that's what's really exciting for me definitionally what does jazz mean to you that's also a very tricky question specifically right now for me personally my family is from haiti okay and in jazz in haiti they call jazz that's equivalent to saying a band so if you're gonna oh i'm gonna go jazz la that means oh i'm gonna go see the band First of all, so it shows how like 
universal that term that word is it's not it's not significant to a style it could be a compa band it could be any type of style they're going to call it jazz so that's like like root like bloodline wise what jazz is to me but it also you know if you want to go scientific it is music that is rooted around improvisation uh, a comp- composing in real time um there was a time where jazz was blues there was a time where it was bebop it was there's so many different eras within the jazz uh world that touches on different tempos and different chords and you know there's vocal jazz there's non-vocal jazz but now actually i'm a hip you want to debate that's happening brian i don't know if you know about this but they trying to change the name jazz to bam which is short for black american music And this is a very interesting debate that's happening right now where people feel that jazz has become so whitewashed and so institutionalized that it's rooted in the black culture. But now it's sort of being getting torn away from us. And so we want to, you know, repurpose it by calling it black American music. And I sort of struggle with that, although I do agree with its roots. Yes, this is rooted in black music in the fields. You know, it was a combination of, of African immigrants and then the American experience coming together with the Negro spirituals and, and it, it, it grew from there. Jazz is an international language. Everyone speaks jazz. I can go to Japan. I can go to Italy. And they, we may not speak the same language, but when it comes to jazz, we definitely do share that. So that's also... The, the one thing that you can go to a jazz club in any country and play together with someone you never met before. And that is incredible. The other issue with calling it black American music is that that's basically just like saying popular American music, right? I mean, that, that encapsulates way too many genres to, to have to just be jazz. And it's, it's also, I think it's, you know, in, 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 in a lot of, in Billy's book, in, in Miles' story, they talk about, how it was their white counterparts, peers, jazz musicians that oftentimes said, look, if you don't let Billie Holiday in through the front door, we're not performing either. This was this was a form. This was a genre of music that was really the ideal when it came to the I comes to the idea of allies. Jazz music was really huge about that. That was like the one genre that there was no room for discrimination, at least amongst the musicians. And I really love that, you know, and by by calling it black American music, I really I don't think that's fair when you when you consider historically how we were able to actually share space and do what we wanted to do. You know what I mean? So but this is controversial. People are gonna be mad at me, Lord. I'm gonna begin. <laughs> I suspect that like all of those people who, who were there who were playing the bands and who were, you know, going out of their way to defend their fellow players would. Mm-hmm would acknowledge that it's primarily the the black form of music. Right. Exactly. True. True. You know, I think you sort of referred to it as the um, institutionalization of music, of jazz music. This isn't to disparage it necessarily, but there's like jazz at Lincoln Center, right? There's this place you can go and spend $200 on a ticket to see this like enshrined version of a genre of music. And it's always sort of struck me at odds to approach a form of music that was not only, as you said, popular music, but also like for so many decades, the 
the vanguard and the head of the avant-garde. It's hard for me to reconcile these two ideas. It's hard for me to reconcile the, the historical experimentation of jazz with treating it like it's something you go to a museum to look at. Mm-hmm. You know, I so I went to the new school for jazz and contemporary music in Manhattan. It's the same school that like um, Robert Glasper um, went to and, and all those guys. And while I was there, I was in my rebellion, jazz rebellion. And I was like, fuck Lincoln Center, fuck Juilliard jazz. Like they're uptight. Da, da, da. Like I and so I was very much, you know, and, and that was the time to be like that. Now that I've wised up a bit and I've actually been invited to sing with Winston Marsalis in the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra, I understand. And I, yeah. I actually believe that there's a space for everything. I think that the this this institutionalized version is a way to preserve the excellence of what the people in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s were doing. I think it's important for us to have a space where we can go back and and really um, bask in the history of that. Because I am a believer of the way to change the future is to understand the history. So for sure, there needs to be a space where... It's not that, though. You know, we those. I think there is a world where they both can coexist. It's tricky because the the sort of like ideas that like the Jazz and Lincoln Center world is trying to coin jazz and make it its own thing, and like this is only this is jazz. But I think that even that sort of debate is really beautiful. I think that we need that fire. We need we need that sort of um, that edge, that rub so that we get back to the space where when those when they were listening to jazz, like for, you know, house parties, it was like illegal. People having alcohol and playing jazz in somebody's living room. And all of that informs the music. It informs the way in which we experience it. And that's why it's really exciting that you have people like Shabaka Hudgens. I don't know if you're into him. You know, he's OK at the core, a jazz musician, if you will, you will from the UK. But when you go to his shows, no one's sitting down, everyone's standing and they're raving to jazz. And and I love it. And, you know, that that's something that, you know, my, my friend Casa overall, an incredible drummer, same kind of energy in his concerts. My friend Theo Croker, you know, um, Nubaya Garcia, like there is definitely a rumbling of people sort of providing, you know, another side of, of the jazz experience. So I now and I feel like, man, am I sounding old But <laughs> now? <laughs> I feel like there is a space for both and, and, and it's okay. It's not entirely dissimilar from a, a lot of people that I talked to who were in like punk bands, for example, who mm-hmm. there were lines that they felt like they wouldn't have crossed when they were younger. Right. And then now with the benefit of hindsight and with the expanded worldview, we realize that at a certain point, we just put up these very arbitrary barriers yeah. in our lives. Yeah. I mean, when I sang with Winton, I was so surprised he pulled me to the side because I was struggling with scatting over this Betty Carter song called Tight, which I'm, I'm actually doing a Betty Carter song on this album, but it's the one I ended up choosing was Jazzy Nothing But Soul. And he took me to his office. I'll never forget this. And he was like, it's just like still in love with you. It's, it's basically Luther. And I was like... What? Winton? Literally jazz ain't nothing but soul. Like literally. Listen. Like that that blew my mind. You know? And then a few months later for the Germany show that I was talking to you about, I found out later on that because they invited me last minute to fill in a slot and it was originally a slot for Jazz Lincoln Center. 
And unfortunately, it didn't work out. And then they invited me. So if that just goes to show that they really can coexist. And the listeners are open. The audience are open to all kinds of stuff, actually, which is very exciting, especially outside of America. It's oftentimes the gatekeepers who are scared to take risks, you know, but the people really are open. Well, that's always been the, the, the case, you know, for myriad reasons with Europe specifically. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. Japan mm-hmm. too, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a long history of specifically black women in the U.S. Mm-hmm. who couldn't break through, went to France, for example, and yeah. like, were, were welcomed with open arms. Absolutely. You're approaching this from another angle, too. You know, we talk about the sort of, I don't know if conflict is the right word, but between sort of traditionalists and and people pushing the avant-garde. The projects like this Verb project, you're actually taking old pieces of music and like mm-hmm. remixing them. Mm-hmm. Is there pushback on that from the standpoint of this sense that like certain things are sacred and just shouldn't be messed with yeah i think so i think i believe that certain things are sacred and shouldn't be messed with there are certain songs that i refuse to touch such as such as like um like strange fruit okay you know which is a song about hanging right and i think that the way in which billy sang it originally she said everything that needs to be said i don't really need to mess with it but i think that also the way in which you rework the music is also sacred. So that's why, you know, for example, there's a song on the album called Detour Ahead that Sarah Vaughn sings. In the beginning, I let her take the forefront, you know, and set the tone in the way I did the, the remix before I entered in with my take on it. You know what I mean? Um, And also, I think me as a black woman, as a black jazz singer, I sort of have this sort of, I feel like I have a blessing from them. You know, of like, okay, you can do this, young lady. I feel, I feel that, you know, as I was doing my research of them saying, yes, you, I give you permission to revisit this, you know. And another thing that I did a lot is I did a lot of research, not only musically, but interview wise. And I listened to these women speak and I found a really awesome interview of Marlena Shaw talking about how she actually appreciates when the next generation samples her and reworks her music. And that was really cool. Now, these specific women that I chose were hip. Anyway, they were already like, Ella Fitzgerald was trying to be a dancer. You know what I mean? Like, she's about that life, you know? Um, And we tried to subscribe certain ideas on them, but they all were super, like, forward-thinking, very artful people. You know, Betty Carter was really artful and took risks. So, you know, I believe that you got to respect it. And I think another piece is doing the homework. I didn't just randomly decide I want to do this. You know, like this is something that I've been, that's been part of my wheelhouse forever. Back when I was at the news school, once again, I, my friends remind me of this. They're like, Melanie, you were always trying to make jazz for the street. Like I was always like pushing this agenda, you know? And so I think paying your dues is important when you're, when you're reworking music and, um, Yeah, but definitely it is sacred. And I hope, I hope, I feel that I have done this, but hopefully I feel that I've approached it respectfully um, and that, you know, my ancestors approve of it, essentially. What what does paying your dues mean in this specific context? Paying my dues, for example, is studying the music from the inside out, 
understanding technically what's going on, cordially what's going on, transcribing. Transcriptions was such a huge part of my development um, as a jazz musician. It was extremely difficult. You had to sit down, listen to the recordings, and literally write out what John Coltrane was playing and then be able to sing it you know, in front of an ensemble of people. Paying your dues is having to show up at Smalls Jazz Club or Zinc or um, St. Nick's Pub and sitting in at jam sessions and getting your ass whipped sometimes and like messing up the changes and, you know, messing up. I remember I was singing at um, Sweet Rhythm, this venue in the West Village, and one of my teachers at school came to see me. And after the show, she was like, um, you messed up the lyrics on such and such song. Like, totally busted my balls, you know, but I never messed up them lyrics again. So paying your dues is like being put in the fire. And really, you know, luckily, when I came up, it was it wasn't really nowadays, you have kids on social media, like, you know, in their little studio at home studio, you know, showing off their skills. For me, it was literally on the field, listen, going out, doing homework, doing research, listening to Roy Hargrove, the late, great Roy Hargrove, may he rest in peace. You know, every time I would go to Smalls or, or um, any jazz club in New York, Roy might show up and he might put on a freaking masterclass and break down, you know, some abstract jazz tune. Paying your dues is really being steeped in the language of this of this music. You got something there that I don't think enough people talk about. Messing up, messing up, and and perhaps messing up in a public forum is a, is a big part of learning those lessons. Absolutely, absolutely, and I've definitely messed up many times in high risk spaces and. You know, that part of paying my dues, I'm grateful for it because now, you know, so for example, now this album, I produced it not with the intention of performing it, but with the intention of it being a reimagined work to listen to. Now we're doing this album release show and now I got to figure out how to perform this music now. You, you knew that was coming, though. I At mean, some point, you're going to have to do it. Right. But, you know, I, I never wanted that thought of how to perform it to affect really how I would shape the, the music, you know. But because I've paid my dues, I know what are the appropriate steps to figure out how to perform them live. And I really give thanks because I have a lot of, you know, peers that were not surrounded in the type of spaces where I was, where I got challenged that I see a lot of people put out great albums. But when it comes to live, it really falls flat. Um, so so I'm grateful for, for those experiences and, you know, stubbing my toe many times. <laughs> How closely do you feel like you have to hew to what you put down on record? So it's going to be a, a, a good balance of what's on the record and reworking them for the live experience. That's also a thing about jazz that's really exciting is that you can do the song however way you want. It can be done 10,000 different ways on tour. You know what I mean? This time we're going to do it as a ballad. This time we're going to do it in three. This time we're going to do it in four, four. So, for example, one of the songs on the Detour Ahead song that I love, when I used to sing it before I made this project, I would sing it as a straight ballad, just a duo with upright bass. And it would bring people to tears, including myself, you know, because it really is the song itself. It's so beautiful. And that's the thing. These tunes, the songs, before you do anything to them, are just gorgeous pieces of art. 
But then you have like the woman of the ghetto slip that I did. People gonna want to hear it. You know what I mean? Kind of like that. So, you know, that one, I'll give it to them. So it's going to be a nice mixture. And some of the songs I'll do, I'm going to start them off one way and end up another way. Um, so it's going to, I think it's going to be exciting to experience you know, people who heard these singles before they come to the show to hear them, whether it's going to be the same or different. And that's the thing, you're never going to get bored at a jazz, a jazz concert, really. I, I think that it is beautiful when you go to certain concerts and it sounds just like the record. There's a space for that. But I think also experiencing something different is a really fun collective adventure. And it's also like a give and take. People don't realize that performances isn't just the band. It's also the energy of the audience, too. So it's really interesting to see how people receive the music. So, yeah, I'm really excited about about the show. We have like serious rehearsals, like leading up to it. And it's it's been a interesting journey. Strange Fruit being the example that you gave of something that like for, for various reasons you feel like you maybe not can't touch or, or maybe shouldn't touch. But when you're starting with something that is as you said, this, like, I, I think gorgeous work of art was the way you mm-hmm. put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see that either being freeing or inhibiting, knowing mm-hmm. that, like, in some senses, you can't make it any better than it is. Right, right. I mean, for example, on the album, there's um, a Dinah Washington song, What a Difference a Day Makes. And, oh my God, she sings it so beautifully. On that one, I decided I'm not singing on that one, on that remix. I'm going to just play flute. And my brother plays saxophone. And so we just sort of like did like a horn arrangement underneath it because I felt like out of respect for what Diana did, I don't need to touch it, you know? So you got to be sensitive um, to, to, to the music. The music will tell you what it needs. I wish I could remember the writer. It was, it was some like well-known writer. And, and they basically said that when they first decided that they wanted to be a professional writer, they literally sat down, took a great work and just wrote it for the experience of what it would feel like to, to, to write a great work of art. You know what I mean? Like, like something existing and basically like transcribed it on the, right the computer. L- listen, transcription is like such an important piece of like developing as an artist. Like, and that blows my mind. I didn't know that that was a thing in literature. So like now you don't blew my mind. Like I didn't even know that. But I remember when I was trying to find my voice as an improviser, my teacher at the new school, her name is Janet Lawson. May she rest in peace. She told me to transcribe and imitate all the vocalists that I liked. And I was like, how? That doesn't make any sense. If I'm trying to find my voice, how am I supposed to imitate? But that's how you develop the, the, the muscle memory, the, the language. So thank you for that anecdote. That's crazy. I didn't know that that was a thing in literature. Damn. I mean, it makes, it makes more sense in, in, in music and like jazz specifically because there's mm-hmm. this long tradition of playing standards and playing older pieces of music. I love the way that it was phrased. I want to know what it felt like to make a great work of art. If you're just trying to sort of recreate something, it's not necessarily there from the creativity standpoint of like you're not actually making it out of whole cloth. You can at least sort of, I don't know, maybe touch greatness by doing that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. You said earlier that definitely a big part of, of jazz uh, is this idea of improvisation, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, like t- obviously takes on different forms mm-hmm. depending on the, the era and, and all of these other mm-hmm. factors. What role did that play in your process of putting this record together? Remember, like this is more of a reimagined remix um, piece. So I did want to make something that although it was rooted in the jazz lineage that it's danceable and catchy 
but I, but certain things like, for example, the Jazz Ain't Nothing But Soul song, um, there was a point in the tune where I realized, okay, we need to make sure that we have an improvisational element. And so I brought in my friend, Orange, um, he goes by Orange Julius, but his name is Julius Rodriguez, who's also my label mate. I don't know if you know him. He's an incredible young pianist, and he really brought the improvisational factor to that song. And then, you know, for the woman of the ghetto, I was like, okay, we need some improvisational element to serve the purpose of showing our resilience sonically. And so I brought in Brandy Younger on the harp to improvise on that one. You know, when it came to vocally, as I, of course, I understood the ways in which the women sang those songs when it came down to me recording vocally. I had to make sure that I took liberties of my own and was more in the moment as I was telling the stories um, of these songs. So, you know, there's improvisation is such also such a broad concept. You know, we went from from the idea of like John Coltrane when he would take a jazz solo, like you'd be there forever to, you know, by the time before Mouse passed away, he was just taking one short chorus um, because there wasn't so much that needed to be said, you know? So, yeah, I, I try to explore all different types of ways of how we can experience improvisation. And then that's another piece. I'm happy you said that, that when we go live, then we can sort of stretch out with that, you know? So that's going to be another fun adventure. Were you in the room with the players? No. So that's also an interesting thing um, now about technology and how we can record projects um, because we were in the lockdown for most of the time of the, of the making of the project, we weren't in the same room, but there are three songs that we were able to make it into the studio. Cause that's when things started to come out and to open up. And that was actually no, only one song that was God bless the child. But even on that, you know, there was quite a bit of overdubbing that happened. Um, but, you know, gone are the days where the only way to do a jazz recording is everyone's in the same room and you have to black out a whole day, you know. Um, and that's another piece. That's another piece of, of what is jazz is like evolving with the technology. You know, Herbie Hancock really changed the sound of jazz as the different synths and keyboards were being created. He like pushed the envelope by tapping into that technology. So I think that that's also a really exciting thing that's happening now is that people are finding ways to create, you know, jazz or black American music, utilizing the technique and different um, techniques of recording. Yeah, I'm, I'm generally a technology agnostic from the standpoint of, you know, I, I don't think that any technology or most technologies are inherently like good or bad. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the way you use them. Mm-hmm. But that said, especially with jazz, but just music in general, I do think you lose something by not having everybody in the same room. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's real. I really think it depends on the type of work you're doing. Because, like, when you think about like Prince, like he was like the one of the first like bedroom produ- bedroom producers. Like, sure, but but to be fair, he would be like play on everything. He would play every instrument, so it kind of had to go down like that. Yeah, yeah, and like Stevie, um, but they did definitely bring in people for certain things. And remember, like I said, like I had to really basically work on this project 
on my own. And then like, if there was something that was outside of my wheelhouse, I had to extend it out to someone. But, um, I think that it depends on like what you're trying to create sonically. And I think that there's nothing, you can't replace the chemistry of being in the room and playing in certain projects and certain styles of music. It has to be that energy. Definitely. My next album, um, is going to be called the lunacy of not believing. It's definitely going to be recorded probably in more of like same room type of vibration. But there are certain projects that I don't I don't think that the magic of them would have occurred if you recorded in that way. It definitely has to be case by case basis. I was listening to another interview that you did a few years back. It sounds like the way you approached recording out of necessity is the same way that you approach teaching yourself to sample. Mm -hmm. It's something that for like various reasons you had to do. Yeah. And it's just like it's another thing for the tool bag, right? It's an, it's not necessarily, this isn't necessarily like the thing that you're going to do going forward, but like when right. a particular piece of music or a particular recording session calls for it, you've got it in your arsenal. Right. And that's also part of paying your dues, you know, like sometimes you're at the show and like the mic cuts out. What do you do? Luckily I've paid my dues. I can sing without the mic. Like that's not a problem, you know, or, you know, my sampler stops working. If there's a piano or keyboard around, I'll just transfer to keyboard or piano and and accompany myself. Um, So having a tool, like you said, a toolbox, an arsenal of things to tap into is is exciting and i'm grateful i'm privileged to to be able to to do that i know that that again at least it's sort of the last time you were really deep into the these interviews i think probably about uh, 2018 you were pretty new to buddhism at the time it was mm-hmm. something there, there was a time space you talked about you talked about in a few interviews and mm-hmm. i think that there is a very strong connection to be made between mindfulness and improvisation mm-hmm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Do you feel that your practice has inspired the music that you make on that level? Absolutely. I think, however, I think the biggest thing that my practice has done for me is created sp- create space where I don't have to, where I'm not judging as I create. It's still a struggle. Don't get me wrong. I'm not perfect at this, but, you know, being mindful, being grounded allows for the art to just happen. I remember, like, I think it was two years ago, I played flute with SZA on um, SNL. And I had the opening so that's a line. good name drop right there. <laughs> subtle, subtle little name drop. Like, like, what was that show called? <laughs> <laughs> so I had the um, opening line on the flute and I was chanting as they were like, in five, four, I was like, and when it came time to play, it just flowed because I was in a mindful space. I wasn't thinking, oh shit, I have to, I have to play this note right that's not where I I was mentally and when I don't tap in because sometimes I'm just moving and I don't make time to chant or just sit I literally see the difference of how I perform so yeah the my practice has really supported me and it's actually connected me with other creatives because at first I started out chanting and then now I move 
closer to Zen Buddhism, which is more rooted in sitting. And I connected with um, Meredith Monk. I'm sure you're familiar with her. She is a Buddhist. Um, She actually has become sort of like a mentor to me now at this point. And she's given me so many pieces of literature and reading based in Buddhism, female practitioners in Buddhism. So it's also like, also serves as like creativity. Like sometimes I'll read a book, I'll read an excerpt by a Buddhist practitioner and the, the song just like flows, you know, I read a line about the flute and, and, and the Buddha. And it's like, ah, oh, that's a beautiful line. Um, and, you know, Herbie Hancock is a Buddhist, um, like a lot of important musicians we know, like tap into that practice of mindfulness. It's a beautiful tool for us. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. Take me through that moment. What is it exactly that chanting did for you in that moment? Well, it just got me out of thinking about, wow, I'm playing on SNL, I'm playing with SZA, and chanting sort of clears out the gunk in your mind. It helps you find a focus. It's like a neti pot for your brain. Yeah, and and, and it, it removes the ego, you know, because the, it's easy to be like, oh, I have to do this, I'm singing, I'm doing this, and it kind of removes the I in that sense, and you're just like present. and. When you have everything inside you, you don't need to be overthinking. You know, it's already there. The work has already been done. So, yeah, that's literally that's how that worked in real time. And I know for sure that if I was not chanting before I had to play that line, then I would have messed up, you know, and I really give thanks um, for, for that practice that I had that tool in my arsenal at the time. I like the use of ego in this context, like because it's like it's sort of both uses of the word ego, really from the standpoint of, listen, I'm here to lift up this artist specifically, you know, right. it's, it's, it's sort of like their moment and I'm here to sort of make it better. Yeah. I'm not going to make this about myself. I'm just going to do the best job I can in the moment. Yeah. And also like, just like honoring the experience of music period. Like I'm just here contributing to this sound right now, even beyond this artist and supporting this artist. Like we are do- creating something collectively Um, that is so medicinal you know like how cool is that you know like we together we're making a sound that can change the molecules of people's brains we can like essentially change people's lives by doing this like how exciting to think of that rather than I'm on TV I'm doing this I'm doing that you know and it really takes off the pressure because then it's not about you you know you're you're in like service to this music and that's that's really liberating hey, it brings us full circle because this idea of uh, you know music as being medicinal I mean in our respective lifetimes at least has has that ever been more important than it is in the current moment I mean I think we are in need of music that is a balm you know I think that we are everybody in the history of the world regardless of the year or time has is will always say oh we live in in crazy strange times right like <laughs> Every generation has always thought that they were living in end times. Like everybody thought they were going to be around for the end of the world. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, okay. So I had to like remind myself that so many times, but that's the beauty of why Marvin Gaye gave us what's going on. You know what I mean? Like that his, his feeling and sort of disappointment and like, 
you know, observance of the craziness of the times gave us this incredible body of work. So I think that that's what we need to continue doing. And that's what I'm committed to doing. And I'm committed to asking the questions that maybe are uncomfortable to ask. Um, I'm willing to take the risk that maybe other people haven't been brave enough to take the risk to do. Um, I look, I was, I was surrounded and raised by a mom who, who just encouraged me to express myself. So for the most part, I am comfortable with taking, you know, these kinds of risks. And I think that the more I continue to do that, the more people behind me will will be encouraged to do that. You know, when you think about the Black Panther movement, you think about the free lunch program, those ideas were very creative. There's a, a big part of revolution and change is rooted in creativity, actually. So, yeah, now more than ever, we need to take risks in the art in order to heal us. People who in some cases weren't willing to take the risk, but in, in probably many more cases weren't able to take the risk. We talked about sort of coded language earlier and from the standpoint of there are very practical reasons why there are some things that people felt like they couldn't address in songs. Right. And maybe in a certain sense, you kind of owe it to them to say those things that they couldn't say. Couldn't say. In the same sense that you're building on the music that they created, you're, you're building on the, the sacrifices they made to allow you to do what you're doing today. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for them. 